to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Kat. And I'm Rich. How many people have you brutally murdered? Well, brutal is a very subjective word. I mean, what's brutal to one person might be totally reasonable to somebody else. Today we're tucking into some haggis with 1993's cult comedy classic So I Married an Axe Murderer, directed by Thomas Schlommy. Mike Myers plays a commitment-phobic chap, a recurring theme on this podcast, who meets his match in the form of beautiful Harriet, played by Nancy Travis, through some meaty issues arise once they get to know each other. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app of choice. We'd appreciate it more than the world's largest cappuccino. Hello! <laughs> what is it about the pairing of Harriet and Charlie and all that comes with it that has led to this movie gathering so many devoted fans over the last 30 years? Well, who better to discuss this than with one of the writers of So I Married an Ex-Murderer, its comedian and communication expert, Neil Malarkey. Neil, we're so pleased to have you on here to talk about your work on this brilliant film. Thank you uh, for having me. It's exciting. Neil, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into comedy and also how you got involved in this brilliant project? Blimey, how long have you got for this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I, I wanted to be a comedian. I wanted to be a doctor. Then I did my A-levels. Then I was in the school play um, and I got uh, addicted to making people laugh. Uh, so I wanted to go to Cambridge University to be in the footlights because that's where Monty Python had been. I managed to get in the footlights. I got to be president. Hurrah for me. Uh, we toured the UK and Australia. I got my equity card going very quickly here. Uh, and then we were... We could no longer call ourselves the Footlights because we graduated, so the youngsters the year after were. So we we said ex-Footlights on our poster. And we were doing a, a small theatre, the Gate Theatre in Notting Hill, above the Prince Albert Pub. Oh, yeah. Uh, fringe Theatre. I don't think it's moved now, but it's quite grand now. But at the time, it was fairly, you know, swirly carpets upstairs above a pub uh, type of thing. And there was a bloke selling tickets for us. Uh, because he'd heard of Cambridge Footlights. He just recently arrived in the UK. He'd heard of Footlights. He'd heard of Monty Python. So he knocked on the door of the theatre, so-called theatre, and said, can I help? And so they said, oh, yeah, right, schmuck. You can paint the set. You can sell tickets. And that person was Mike Myers. Wow. Didn't know anybody in Britain, but had had success in Canada as a child actor and then was Second City, the great comedy sketch group and improv group, as I discovered later. Uh, we got talking and I... Th- I thought, what are you doing here? He said, I'm writing sketches and, uh, you know, trying to, this is the land of my parents who are both from Liverpool. I love Peter Sellers. I love British comedy. And I said, oh, no, no, it's not like that anymore. It's all about alternative comedy, you know, a stand-up and alternative. Uh, so I said, I'll take you to see some comedy. And we did. And we'd started doing a double act, Malarkey and Myers. And we did that for a while. Uh, then we formed the Comedy Store Players. And that in 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 sort of very small uh, moments is is how it happened really mike and i we we made each other laugh we did this double act together we kept in touch i went to see him in toronto with second city and then every now and again i'd go visit him and i went to visit him when he was in saturday night live and he said i'll come into 30 rock 30 rockefeller plaza in the center of uh, new york and we what happens is they tend to write overnight tuesday and then there's a read through wednesday before Saturday Night Live uh, happens on the Saturday. It's fairly brutal because sketches get cut. They get cut even between the rehearsal at 9.30 and the live broadcast at 11.30. And they always have a famous guest, a guest host, uh, if you like. And Mel Gibson was the one this week. And Mel could do a Scottish accent. I'm sure you know it well. (laughs) Mike wrote a sketch where Mel Gibson 
was host was host of a shop that sell things sells things all Scottish, um, and <laughs> it was cut. It was cut between the dress rehearsal and the show. Uh, but eventually, Mike made his character Wayne be a great hit. Wayne's World One was a huge hit. Aerosmith recorded a version of the theme, and so on and so forth. I went to visit Mike. We went out to L.A. when he was interviewed by Johnny Carson. And then the next summer, he had this other project. He'd done, he presented, I think, Short Film Award at the Oscars to Rob Freed and Kerry Woods, who had this property called So I Married an Axe Murderer. And so he was telling me, uh, well, yeah, this looks like it might go. Michael Lehman, who directed Heathers, is going to direct. And Sharon Stone is going to co-star. And the one thing that they've agreed, the producers, it's not going to be called so I married an axe murderer because that's not going to play well with the family audience. If you like, it'll sound like a horror movie. And um, before we started, you both mentioned it was kind of a mixture of genre comedy and horror here. And so that that it was always dangerous, is it not? Anyway, eventually um, I was on holiday uh, in Provence having a nice time. And got a fax. Yes, that's how old I am. That was <laughs> in the 90s. And it was from my agent saying, can you get to Los Angeles in three days? What? So I rang Mike. He said, yeah, we need you on Friday morning. And um, basically, I found out later, Conan O'Brien, whom I'd met very briefly, had been a writer on Saturday Night Live, had said, Mike, yeah, yeah, I'll help you with the rewrites. Because Mike had always said, I, I want to change it because it had been written, I think, with certain people in mind, Gary Shandling was attached. And so it's going to be a particular, you know, a Jewish guy and Mike is not. And then he sort of make him Scottish, make San Francisco part of the background, make San Francisco a character in itself and that whole sort of atmosphere that it brings. Um, <clears throat> Conan said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And then James L. Brooks said, no, you're not. No, you won't, Conan. You're writing on The Simpsons. You're not allowed to go and play with other people. So Mike suggested to the producers, can I bring my comedy partner from England? They, you know, all right, why not? Because he very much, Wayne's World had been a big hit. It had really turned things around for the studio that made it. So I arrived in, uh, in Los Angeles to try and write this film with Mike. Excuse me, miss. There seems to be a mistake. I believe I ordered the large cappuccino. Hello! Look at the size of this thing. It's practically a bowl. It's like Campbell's Cappuccino. <laughs> My size. Because I'm this schmuck from England, and so the producers are looking at me like I'm a genius, and I'm thinking, I, I don't feel very funny now. Uh, Mike is a huge star, very accomplished, obviously, always with a real eye for detail. In this hotel room at the Four Seasons, which is a very grand hotel, uh, there's he's he's uh, there's a script assistant who's from University of Southern California who's kind of studying movies. There's there's somebody who's doing the actual typing while we speak. Mike's got an assistant as well. So we kind of got there's an environment which I'm feeling uh, nobody knows me. And the producers and and the director Tommy Schlommy or Thomas Schlommy as he's better known. Uh, who, who, that, so it's all changed since I'd spoke to Mike before. So Tommy Schlommy is directing. He directed a movie before um, Sharon Stone's off the picture. Nancy Travis is on and the producers, Rob Fried and Kerry Woods pop in every now and again, kind of. And, and I feel they're looking at me thinking this guy is a genius. And I'm no, I'm not. I'm not really not. Um, I'm just his friend from England. And Mike has asked me subsequently to write various things. He kind of I'm his sense check, I think, because when you're surrounded by people, and you're a star, it's hard for somebody to say, no, that's not funny. And so <laughs> it's quite hard for me because I've got to look 
you know, I, sometimes I twitch as if it's good and then I twitch as if, as if it's bad. And Mike is looking for me to sort of work how that goes. And we had a very yeah. strong feeling that um, his character should be a poet. So I would write some poetry that a Scottish person might write. So <laughs> I try and speak <laughs> very British words. I tried to get the word bonce in there. <laughs> what is this one? Bounce, bounce. I mean, no, no, bounce. It means your head. It's, you know, he's got an enormous head. Uh, <laughs> it was very overroaring. It was. There were moments when it was fun, but there were moments when I, I felt very much out of my depth, as you can imagine. Head, move. One thing that people of, of my vintage, anyway, will know that um, apparently Carrie Fisher also did some work on the script at one point. Was that when you were involved, or before, or after? I wasn't involved, and um, I believe that was to to rewrite um, Nancy Travis's uh, Harriet role. Because, of course, I'm a man, Mike's a man, and and uh, it's uh, obvious that we may not be the best writers for women. So I think she she was there, to, what the, you know, to pump up, punch up uh, the Harriet character, or maybe the other female character as well. So I was I did not meet Carrie Fisher. Very sadly, I did not. Um, that was her role. So it was done at some point when I wasn't there. Okay. Of course, you were in Austin Powers together again, not uh, not at the same time. but uh, No, no the, the Austin Powers uh, one scene I did with was with um, Elizabeth Hurley, who I recommended Mike to look at because around the time of uh, Four Weddings and they wanted a posh, beautiful woman, English. So I said, try Elizabeth Hurley. And they did in the end because Mike sent me the script saying, I don't know what you think of this. And this is... Um, Austin Powers, I said, this is great. He said, oh, I just wrote it as a spec, really, to see, you know, this is kind of what I can do. I said, do this, do this one. And interestingly enough, just to sidetrack for a moment, Austin Powers won. They did a sort of, you know, trial, whatever they call it, trial screening in L.A. And it got terrible, terrible reactions. <laughs> and it Really was, interesting. It, yes. I mean, um, I don't know exactly where it was shown, but it was it was in a place in Los Angeles where they it's unlikely they'd heard too much about carry on movies and James Bond upon <laughs> um, which dare I say it's kind of modeled. Uh, so, so some of them, some of that might not have been for them, but it was new line said, I don't care. We're going to go for it anyway. And of course the rest is history. So yeah, I didn't meet Carrie Fisher. Sadly, there were times I went back on set and then the evolving character of uh, Mike's father, there were discussions who's going to play that. And Mike wanted to play it himself, of course, because he can play it brilliantly and he knew he knew the beats how to play it and so I was tasked to rewrite it to make sure that Mike and his father were not in the same shot <laughs> and oh, wow. um, there was a brilliant storyboard artist who I went to visit uh, in downtown San Francisco he'd kind of done some of the work already but he kind of done the how could it work and so I wrote a line here a line there for how to shoot it such that Mike and his father would not necessarily be in the same shot. I think they managed to do it for one or two, and that costs money and time. Uh, so that was another sort of logistical thing. Um, so I spent much of my time when it was actually shooting. Uh, I wasn't there for the whole thing by any means, but I was there for a bit in the city and uh, was writing on a I think Tommy's lent me his old type word processor. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to write some poetry and it was kind of hard because I was in my head was in Britain and, and we were on this movie where a lot of money was riding on this. And it was Mike was trying to work out what his character was because he has before and since generally played characters who are much larger or very different from him physically, perhaps, and emotionally. 
And this was the closest, dare I say, to him. Uh, and so that was kind of just trying to work out how broad to play it, how not broad to play it. And again, maybe that's where Carrie Fisher's input was, you know, how much do we make the jokes? How do we match the story? Because it's trying to cross the genres. You've got a love story here. You've got a, a funny, funny man in charge, uh, you know, of his playing the lead character. And you've got Tommy as well, who's an accomplished drama director. And, and uh, for me, that's a creative tension. But, you know, people will say what they will say about um, those difficulties. Um, for me, it was kind of, just trying to help make the poems funny, <laughs> um, help Mike feel assured that he was doing it in a way that was true to his art, dare I say. I think kind of that was my role in a way to kind of bring in a bit of fun here and there and also help Mike try and find the character a little bit. Not always easy because, you know, I'm, I'm just his schmuck friend who's there for a couple of weeks. So um, that was kind of the things that were going on on, on the set. I think there needs to be a film made about the relationship between you and Mike, because <laughs> this sounds like so. a very it's, rich one. Yeah. Well, it's, it is very rich. And as anybody who's been in a double act will tell you, it's like a marriage except worse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my because, God. <laughs> I mean, ask anybody. Um, and you're very close to this person physically, emotionally. Comedy, you know, you can tread on each other's laughs and so on and so forth. But when you triumph... It is the most beautiful thing. It's like mm. a beautiful marriage. And so we are a curious pairing in that I'm apparently a posh English man and he's a Canadian guy. <laughs> uh, what he does have is a fierce intellect, of course, extremely well read. His father was a door-to-door -door salesman for Encyclopedia Britannica. So his knowledge is literally encyclopedic. Uh, he knows yeah. so many things about so many things, and he's obviously continued that reading ever since. Um, but what I what I felt when we start, first started working together, so he was the guy selling tickets. He was actually in a wheelchair at the time, not because he's a wheelchair user, because we'd used all the regular chairs on the set of the pub theatre uh, in Notting Hill. Um, so he was there kind of shivering away yeah. in this old, unheated pub theatre. And I said, let's do something together when I took him to comedy. And he said, yeah, let's do it. Because he made me laugh. He did that thing where he walks down the hit, the stairs, but not really. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I said, that's so good. Things. This is, you know, this is where I can take some credit. I said, that's so good. Let's do a whole sketch based on that concept. So we spent <laughs> weeks and weeks in his studio, freezing cold studio in Ladbroke Grove, a fairly rundown part of London, he was behind the couch and I was behind some chairs with a sheet on them. Just what jokes can we think of and images that work where you can only see the top half of somebody? So we wrote uh, a sketch called Dr. Wicked, uh, which you can find on YouTube from our performance in Edinburgh uh, mm -hmm. on Scottish television in 1986. Uh, and dare I say, Dr. Wicked perhaps uh, may have influenced how Dr. Evil uh, played. But it was always that <laughs> yeah. kind of, you know, the home life of the evil antagonist <laughs> yes what's it like to be you know not just those moments are i'm going to take over the world but when you've got to deal with your son who doesn't want to take <laughs> over the world, that kind of stuff and a henchman who's kind of what's my pension what benefits do i get to be a henchman that kind of the, the sort of nitty-gritty of being uh, an evil mastermind anyway mike and i made each other laugh that was basically it and he brought out of me which was so lovely that i hadn't had at cambridge a, v a much sillier physical visual humour 
uh, mm, that I yeah. I found liberated me. I had done a whole show actually of physical humor. I called it a bit of quiet fun, which was uh, oh, and then I, yeah, mime over matter or something. Where I did sort of silent sketches a la Jacques Tati. Uh, Jacques Tati. I, why did I say it that way? Uh, but I'd seen Jacques Tati on Parkinson where he said it all starts with the legs. Comedy starts with the legs. Uh, so the two of us brought out something, uh, a love of B-movies, a love of um, movie stereotypes, cliches and stuff. And that's basically what the sketches we did, uh, which is somebody's about to go and face the monster and you say, be careful. Uh, and that kind of <laughs> that kind of moment of close-up, close-up stuff. Anyway, um, we've gone horribly off track. You'll have to make this into four podcasts. Have we got a sponsor who can make that happen? It's all nice. it's all fantastic, fantastic stuff. I don't think I've ever told you this, but I went to see uh, Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery at the cinema as a teenager four times. So <laughs> There you go. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's... Dare I say, I bumped into David Walliams the other day with his son, and David said, this is the man from Austin Powers. And the son, <laughs> wow, that's the man, because David's, that's what he shows to his son. And the son is kind of, wow, you're a real star. You know, who cares about my dad? And it was, they were saying, you know, it's still, it's so funny. It's so silly. It works. Um, so I'm glad to hear you watched it four times. Thank you. Oh, it brought so much joy to my friends and I. And, and. I think you touched on it um, as well in that there's something about the comedy that you two created together that it fuses that childlike slapstick visual comedy with a kind of underlying feeling of there being a sort of cerebral intelligence going on, you know, as a, as a sort of backdrop. And it's I, I lo- lovely contrast, Mike, yeah. Mike combines very big gags, visual, physical with a knowing arch intelligence. You know, when Alice Cooper is sort of, <laughs> has to be an incredible intellectual, which of course he is, but you know, and that Wayne is hoping, come on, wh- where's a smashing television? Oh no, no, we don't do that uh, sort of thing. That's quite funny. Um, oh, so and good, yeah. you know, That kind of juxtaposition is, is what Mike is wonderfully good at. I mean, when we come to this film and, and you said that you were working a lot around the character of, of Mike's dad in the film and, we see, obviously, with what Mike and went on to do later on with that character, essentially, and it's easy to boil it down to the Scottish accent, but becoming a sort of fat bastard and Shrek. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, down to that level. But you realise that if you talk to people about this film, if you mention it on social media, everyone immediately comes back with heat and talking <laughs> about the kid. I mean, my dad was Scottish and yeah. I mean, he, he wasn't as... Outgoing, I think I'll put it mildly, um, <laughs> as, uh, as, as Stuart. But um, it was definitely one that when I showed it to my dad when I was younger, and he kind of did laugh because he was very similar to my uncle and some of my cousins. So there was you know, that. And I know that you said that Mike had some had British parents as well. But to, to have that kind of little bit of grounding, because it's easy to forget, you know, we, we talk about films where they're not just romantic relationships, but they're within families and friends and things like that, heroes, villains. But to have, you know, the relationship around essentially a romance and a marriage, but also the relationship between the parents as well, because Stuart and, and Brenda Fricker as well, my mum was a big fan of hers. And seeing them together and the way that they interact was very much like the kind of first or second generation immigrants going abroad and 
And that was how they behaved. And him having his Scottish beer and her sticking to the... I mean, that was was the Weekly World News a thing or was that just a takeoff of the National Enquirer? I think yeah, I think that's right. But um, it's, I'm glad you've noticed that because um, obviously that was very funny, but because of this broad character, but actually quite truthful. And I, and I will share the fact that Mike lived in, grew up in Scarborough, uh, which is a, a suburb of Toronto. And of course, in the 1960s, there were a lot of first generation immigrants to Canada. So his neighbours were Scottish. So Virtually every character he does has an element of a real person. That person is based on the Scottish dad he lived next door to. <laughs> of course, it's based on his parents as well in some ways. Mike was very close to his father. Mike would recognise that his father was the one who introduced him to comedy. So literally, Mike would be asleep and his two brothers uh, at midnight and wake up, wake up. Come on, Mike. It's it's a carry on movie. You've got to come and watch this movie. So that was Mike's education was you have to watch British comedy. Um, and so there was that sense. And particularly Mike would say to me that on Christmas Day, imagine Christmas Day, you're an English family in Toronto and people pop in and they open the door and there you are and you're wearing paper hats. <laughs> This doesn't happen in North America. Why are they wearing paper? Oh, because they're the thing in the crackers. And of course, it's holding on to the old country. Uh, I think there's something there. You're absolutely right. And I, I dare say, you know, Brenda could very much have been played by, sorry, Brenda Fricker's character was not dissimilar to Mike's own mum, if you like. And I think there's something there about being embarrassed by your dad, by delighted by your dad, at your dad saying the wrong thing. Uh, we all know that. Being a dad now, I'm trying desperately not to, but it's, <laughs> it's I do it all the time now. I just have to revel in it. Yeah, uh, to embrace I it. I think you're absolutely right. There, there, that scene, those scenes are kind of broad and funny, but there is a there's a family there about that we all can recognise, especially the, as you say, the first generation immigrants. Can I help you? Yes. Uh, do you have haggis? Yes, we do. Uh, one. Uh, yes, please. My parents are Scottish. How did you work out the kind of balance of sweetness and jeopardy between the relate um, between Harriet and Charlie? Because I think that's that's a part of the film that I I really like is their courtship. Uh, when we've covered other films of the sort of romantic comedy genre on this podcast, uh, quite often we sort of see people kind of projecting onto one another. They don't get to know each other that well. And one thing that I really love about this one is how Charlie goes and helps Harriet at the butchers. He like gives her practical help. And I always think that's what women want. You see, women <laughs> want a man to make their day less stressful. That's ultimately what we want. Well, and you see you that. Wow, in- <laughs> no, all the men are going, write that down. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. It wasn't easy because... Um, how do you keep the tension with, with, is she a murderer? Tony's saying, no, no, of course she isn't, don't be silly. Um, and this image that she could be a murderer, oh, wait a minute, that's just your fear of commitment. Uh, that's the, the sort of nub of, it, nub of it, if you like. Yeah, um, yeah. And one of the versions I read, Robbie Fox's version, who, co-wrote, who wrote it initially uh, on his own, and then we rewrote it, uh, we wrote it entirely. Uh, make it completely different, different character, different location. We wrote every, rewrote every single word. Um, but it was his basic story, though. Yeah. Um, but at the end of one of the versions I read, Harriet is a murderer. 
Right. And so there was a long debate of how do you keep the tension so you don't know if she is or she isn't. Does it feel wrong if the murderer tends, it turns out to be somebody else completely unrelated? And the sister being the murderer, oops, uh, was helpful because she could have been there all the time. She might have a motive. But it, we felt strongly that Harriet, you've invested so much in Harriet and Charlie, you don't want her to be the murderer. Because, you know, the dun-dun-dun at the end, oh, she is a murderer sort of thing, which we've seen in, in other thriller-type movies where we've invested in her or him and they turn out to be the baddie after all. Yeah. Um, we felt, well, we've invested, we want them to be together because it, it is a comedy. Um, Mike was very much that a comedy film, you know, you need 12 funny scenes and brilliant scenes, which all his movies have, just scenes that people will quote endlessly. It's interesting that people, uh, Rich, you know, say they remember Heed. Um, so what, how did we keep that balance? And, and I don't know if, 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 it, was, if it was right in, in terms of that movie, which was trying to be in you know, two genres uh, of, of the truth of Charlie and Harriet versus is she a murderer or is this just Charlie's lack of commitment? I, I dare say that wasn't easy. And uh, there were some reshoots as well. I, I think we did that to make it clear that Rose was the murderer or have a kind of denouement where it clearly was Rose. Uh, so we had to do some reshoots. We came back and they constructed a rooftop scene in a, an outdoor location and had rain and everything. Uh, so I think that probably was to sort of leave the aftertaste of, yes, it was Rose. And now we can all rest easy that Harriet and Charlie were together. I think that was probably why we had to do reshoots to clarify that ending. And so our emotional investment in Harriet and Charlie was was justified. Yeah, but I'm glad you picked that out because Mike definitely didn't want to be cliched about this. And Thomas also, Tommy Shlomi, you know, the drama here, what's the emotional story? Because we want it to develop. We want them to fall in, to fall out as, as you would any movie. And um, I think, have I been by that stage on um, the story workshop about every scene you start with positive and end with negative, that the, the values of a movie. Uh, have you seen the film Adaptation? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Brian Cox plays a character who's a story guru, Robert McKee. And I've been to his workshops, which basically talk about what are the values. If the value of the film is love, then scene begins with them not in love. Scene should end with them in love. You know, mm, literally yeah. have it as a formula like that. And inciting incident, end of act one, is where they're this, they're, maybe they're in love, inciting incident, end of act two, they're not in love because if you have a happy ending, you need to have an unhappy end of act two sort of thing. All helpful stuff if you're rewriting. So that was that was kind of what we wrestled with, I suppose. What's what is the central theme? Is this love? Is this commitment or is it just uh, a murder spoof? And um, I dare say those could have led to all sorts of tensions as to what, what exactly we were trying to fulfill. And, and when you say people love it, I think it's because they they kind of appreciate we're trying to do quite a lot there. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it could have been much broader. Um, it could have been much less funny. Um, and, and those are two kind of tricky beasts to tame. Yeah. And it's also um, very, very clever in that I think that it's, it's playing on something very real that people have when they're, uh, you know, falling in love with someone, which is that, you, I think, or at least a lot of us oscillate between uh, elation and absolute terror. 
<laughs> and, and I think a lot of romantic comedies don't reflect that. Yeah. The date that they have, or at least, you know, when they're walking around together and that they're kind of horsing around. We we recorded an episode recently on Gregory's Girl. Yeah. And we were talking about how in that one, you know, they've got the lovely scene at the end there with them sort of lying on the ground dancing underneath the trees you know and that's the thing that's really difficult to convey with like chemistry between people is that there has to be that kind of playful idiosyncratic quality otherwise it sort of falls flat but that's really hard to get on the page I imagine when you're sort of trying to come up with okay how are these two people going to connect how are they going to be able to relax with each other yeah well Mike was Mike is a, is a cinema uh, you know, guru or what is it? Cineast, I would say. He loves movies. One of, you know, his heroes, Walter Murch, uh, the film editor and stuff. So he knows a lot about movie. And uh, the day he left high school, he was offered a chance to go and join Second City or go and study film. And he chose Second City, but he knows a lot about film. So one of his things was always show, don't tell. Because he, he came from the world of improv as well, where it's easy to say, I'm unhappy, rather than, you're late. So, yeah. so that... You know, the image of the happy couple, the image of things not going so well, uh, you know, th- those are the kind of things that, uh, th- that did get make it on the screen, I think. And Tommy was also, you know, keen on, he was, you know, dare I say, he was, you know, what's the story here? What's the, the emotional truth for, for Harriet and uh, Charlie? And what's Harriet's story here? Because obviously we're seeing it through the lens of Charlie generally, because he's the one who's apparently seeing that she's a murderer or not and tony's telling him no don't be so silly so i think it is hard to uh, as you say romantic comedies generally don't ever look at the reality (laughs) because we don't want that really in a way we just want the prince and princess to be together yeah Um, and but our real lives are what do you do on a don't damp tuesday when the other person um has or hasn't done what they promised to do yes um i i did like the character of tony being um irresistible to to ladies of a certain vintage that seems to be something that uh, i guess again with the my family background they always tend to there's that line between sort of the pinching of the cheeks and then the little bit of the little bit more and um i mean his his evolution and and i mean his interactions with alan arkin were fantastic because um yes. regular listeners of the podcast know i work in the same profession and having the relationship between the two of them, just as a kind of couple of scenes working around, you're too nice to be it's a so great, captain. isn't it? You know? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you yes. can imagine trying <laughs> trying to do that now is is difficult because again moving away. But you know, even at the end, he's like, oh, did I go too far with the ethnic slurs? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, Alan Arkin. I mean, and we had we were very fortunate to have those brilliant actors who who stepped in for brief moments. Uh, really fortunate because you know you you'd have your ideal can we get him can we get her oh hey they're gonna do it and phil hartman for example just brilliant on alcatraz uh these and those moments and can you i watched the alan arkin scene the other day because mike sent it to me when he passed away and and it was it's so good um Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm like, I'm just. I, I need to go and watch this film again now. Really, I'm feeling a bit sort of sad and <laughs> elated about it because I'm getting all the the sense of so many people come to me, uh, journalists and so forth over the last decades, and said, you know what, I really love that film. Yes. <laughs> so underrated that movie. You know, Wayne's World, etc. Shrek. These are great. But what about Axe Murder? And just to finish off what I planted earlier was that Mike said, 
uh, having a title axe murder of, of a film that's hopefully going to play to a broader audience they didn't change it in the end i don't know how we could have changed it in the end because that's the kind of premise but it was amusing because mike had said very early on it, it won't be called so i married an axe murderer in common parlance uh, although i think it has been is that very soon it'll be called axe murderer you know for short and that'll be in the top 10 people i don't want to go and see that that sounds like a you know a spotty boy movie that people get sliced up every five minutes yeah. and i was driving through sherman oaks which is kind of the over the hill in in the valley in los angeles one evening and there it was the, the marquee the billboard outside the cinema axe murderer um and that that was how it was sold in a way and it was very um frustrating in a way to uh that the film didn't kind of bring itself however it could have done to, to, to the wider audience that we now know have loved it that possibly and again i don't know how you know the science or the art of trailers and movie promotion and what was opening and so forth because i did I, it was quite amusing because i was I, I went for the opening weekend and, and um i went with the producer to play golf in santa barbara and this was trying to get away from things and of course he was getting phone calls all the time on his mobile, which was quite unusual is from the, from the reports in New York as to how the matinees and stuff were going. And, and the numbers were not good. So he was, he was very disappointed because he put a lot into this. He'd owned this, the rights to this film for a long time, Rob Freed, and had meant, you know, worked with Robbie Fox, had worked with possible lead actors in it, changing it, diluting it, uh, refining it, working out where it might go, eventually getting it made. So it was, it was a big blow to, to Rob Freed that it didn't work in the way that he felt it should, because he did feel that the, the, the truth in it about commitment did have something to say to, to us, to us all in a way. But um, it's fun to have been involved, albeit in a minor way, with something that people do really love. Did you have any uh, thoughts on what you thought the title should be as an alternative? Well, that's, we went through a lot of stuff about that. Um, and I, I can't remember where we got because we just, it was just Mike saying, we can't call it Axe Murder. Uh, and then I can't remember, I think, So I Married, Commitment. I don't know. There were, we didn't really have a strong alternative. That's probably why I can't remember it and why it ended up where it was. Um, and I'm sure there was sort of testing going on. So Mike Myers, So I Married, an Axe Murderer. The So, I think the So tried to loosen it, you know, kind of So mm. I Married, an Axe Murderer. It takes the tinge off um, somehow. It makes it slightly more comedic. But no, there was not a strong alternative. And I don't remember being invested in one that uh, we went out to bat for. One thing I loved about the, the way that when initially um, Mike's character broke up with, forgetting her names now. Harriet. Harriet, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> with Harriet was um, then when he decided to get back together with her and the scene with the poems on the roof outside her window. And you're kind of thinking, we, we've talked again before around these sort of grand gestures and how do you win someone back or win them in the first place? Yes. And having sort of beat poets and that outside a window, it seems, I mean, that, that can't be topped. And you think of all the things you can do, you know, especially when we're in the era now of TikTok and social <laughs> media and that, and people doing all those stupid proposals at yes, university yes. graduations. This is kind of that really nice balance of, it's public but private. It's outside her window, and it's a really yeah. nice gesture and, and a nice 
is contained in a nice way because it's for her benefit despite yeah he's gone to all this hassle to get his mates up there and I mean, God knows, God knows what the neighbours thought. But um. <laughs> now, that's a beautiful moment. Uh, that is that is a great moment. Yeah, and and um, Mike's idea was definitely have him beat poet, and so that meant there were lots of opportunities for such moments. I think. Um, so yeah, that was that is. I'm thinking of that now. It is that was beautiful, wasn't it? Yes, hurrah! Yeah. So that's it. We're doing comedy, we're doing romance, and we're doing uh, sort of thriller. Uh, so gosh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. <laughs> yeah, which which films were influencing you when you were writing it with Mike? Oh gosh, or... now you'd have to ask him because he will he can tell you chapter and verse, any movie, any scene, etc. Et yeah. Um, but I suppose uh, let me try and think because he would often reference movies that were doing more than one thing. Um, you know, Doctor Strange Love, dare mm. I say, yeah. is sort of funny, but also there's something else going on, isn't there? Yeah, uh, it's not the same genre as this, but there. How can you have moments of broad comedy in something that's kind of a satire? I guess. Um, so that, that that's the best answer I can come up with. But Mike, Mike, um, a lot of his work, and that's why his characters tend to be based on real people. He'll he'll reference an existing something, whether that's a real person or another movie, uh, or theatre or, or whatever. Uh, so, for example, I was in his Netflix thing, The Pentaveret that was uh, came out last year yeah and <laughs> the kentucky fried chicken motif came out people noticed that we mentioned in axe murderer you know again based on somebody really thinking that the colonel was a baddie well it's a well-known fact sonny jim that there's a secret society of the five wealthiest people in the world known as the pentaverit mm. who run everything in the world including the newspapers, and meet tri-annually at a secret country mansion in Colorado known as the Meadows. So who's in this pentaverit? The Queen, the Vatican, the Gettys, the Rothschilds, and Colonel Sanders before he went tits up. Oh, I hated the Colonel with his wee beady eyes and that smug look on his face. Oh, you're gonna buy my chicken, oh! My bit. I've got, I, I play a character called the Mustache Man. It is based on the Kubrick movie with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, yeah. But there's a character, all they do, and there's kind of a, a certain piece of music <laughs> and doesn't say anything, but menacingly gives some, a, a written piece of paper or a card or envelope. Um, so that was that's what Mike's imagination is like, is let's get a scene a bit like that. And you wouldn't have perhaps known where the scene came from but um so so i would i would i i claim very little authorship here by the way mike's idea to make it san francisco mike's idea to make it be poet so when i arrived on that friday he kind of knew what he had in mind uh, for a lot of it and uh that was the the task we had was to bring that to fruition in many ways so uh if i <laughs> i'll ring you up later or send you an email if i remember the uh any scenes that we had, but you can see a lot of those things like the Anarchin one based on the cliche of the boss in Starsky and Hush, you know, yeah. you've got 48 hours to sort this out. So uh, that kind of thing, the, the cliche that we all know, which was kind of the sketches that Mike and I did, the cliche of the B movie from the fifties where aliens <laughs> were communists, the invading hordes, uh, they look like aliens, but they really, we all know they're Russian communists trying to undermine the Western way of life. So that was, um, there's always something in Mike's mind, image-wise, and he's a he loves drawing, and he'll always often have an, a sort of image of 
what it should remind you of or, or the context in which we should understand a moment, I think. One relationship, and it was only very small towards the end, that I'd have, I'd have paid good money to see a 90-100 minute movie about was um, when Tony tried to commandeer the car from Charles Grodin. <laughs> and, I love that. Yeah. You know, and, and again, the, the link back to him talking to the captain about, oh, I've never done all these things, I have, I've never commandeered a vehicle. Yes. And then when he tries to do it for the first time, it's peak Charles Grodin. Yes. Um, <laughs> and you can imagine being in that car, and I know we get a slight clip of you know the, the noise. As a, no, it's my favourite thing in the my world. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, again, Charles Grodin, just joyous. Uh, Midnight Run, one yeah. of my favourite films. Um, and I even went to see a, a, him in a play because it was Charles Grodin. Yeah. in Manhattan and just great to get somebody kind of inhabits the moment you you picture <laughs> so I suppose we were trying to pepper it with moments like that which is light relief funny recognizable thing oops what's the reality of this so-called cliche so that's again Tony being a, a police officer that helps you've got some rich veins there I'm a big Seinfeld fan and I really loved the Michael Richards scene yeah, in this as well. again, again, cuts through the cliche so brilliantly. It was, it was I, I think I came with, we were trying to work out how could he find out some information without it being too, lap, drawing, dropping into his lap. Um, and I said, oh, what's, the, what's it called? The marriages and things in the column? <laughs> uh, what's it called? Oh, bits of it. And yeah. then uh, it was funny because Mike kept saying, yeah, let's get the guy from Seinfeld, somebody who's kind of irrationally angry. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know his name, the guy from Seinfeld. So he was the guy from Seinfeld for a long time. Uh, I think, the, <laughs> of course, Michael Richards is Kramer. Yeah. And I adore Kramer. And so, again, you think, oh, that's the picture, that kind of <laughs> irrational anger. Let's, let's get that. And we did. And that was the stock that Mike had at that stage because he people knew him well from Wayne and Saturday Night Live and you know in many I'm going to say he's not quite the comedian's comedian which sounds damning but people in comedy see his craft mm. Uh, mm. applaud his bravery boldness chutzpah yes <laughs> going for it uh, and so it was lovely to have those people we only asked him to come for a short period of time but up to San Francisco and so forth. It was funny because also now I'm thinking about Tony, uh, Anthony LaPaglia had to come back for the reshoots. Having He was in a play in New York and his head was shaven. So they, oh, no. they had to give him a wig of his own hair sort of thing. And, uh, <laughs> he'd look like he'd look like, you know, whatever, six months ago. Just, those kind of things that, um, you know, the, the studio and the producer were really behind it. And we were so trying to get it right. Um, and so it was a shame that it didn't get there. But now, you know, in... In comedy heaven, in movie heaven, the movie is being recognised for, for what people hoped it might be. Is there another little development of the Dr. Evil character that you mentioned having kind of, you know, started with Michael those years back? Because there's that bit where he says, "I'm, you know, something evil, <laughs> evil. And, and I, I'll think, oh, that something's happening uh, here. It yeah. may well be. I, you know, I've, I imagine Mike met somebody who said evil like that. <laughs> Because um, he told me once, um, he was talking to Mick Jagger. <laughs> of course, because Mick Jagger's a big friend of the executive producer Saturday Night Live. And he was talking to Mick Jagger in a penthouse. And Mick Jagger described, and he said, oh, yes, we could make a movie. <laughs> I, must, I must have that one day, a character who has several syllables in the word movie. And that's the kind of character Mike is. Uh, he'll kind of, like 
Roald Dahl, I think, wrote down things in a notebook. He'll he'll kind of he'll, he'll save that and then bring it out for another story, another occasion, another character completely. So I don't know who's at evil. Yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine there was. That's why he's he's kind of a magpie. Is that he's never short of ideas because he's thinking, oh, let's borrow that, let's bring that in, and that's where I. It's interesting to learn from him, where because um, when I did my English language O level, listeners, uh, I didn't do very well because you had to write an essay, and I thought I had to make it up. And then Mike and others, they don't make it up; just borrow from somebody and you know put it in slightly different clothes. Writing is a lot of remembering, borrowing, and a bit of imagination. Um, and that's what um, Mike is interesting about, about how boring movie moments that might be very highbrow and then putting them in, in a lowbrow moment. For example, you know, the reality of somebody saying, I want to take this car or the reality in Austin Powers of trying to turn around a, that vehicle in a tight spot, a corridor where you, it's going to take you forever. Whereas in movies, <laughs> just cut to it being. And, you know, lots of people in the background it, stormtrooper characters running from left to right for no good reason at all but it kind of adds adds to the air of urgency of the moment but detail detail that, that mike likes about movie cliche yes well i i love how uh it sort of cuts through the cliche of some of the things that lovers say to one another in in romantic comedies i love the line i want you to have my children and I want you to have your children. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of children. No, that was brilliant. You know, it was really, really yeah. good. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, th- that was the kind of thing. I, we, even though it was Rodney King and everything, <laughs> during that period, Mike was really going well. And also he's very uh, good at on set coming up with stuff. And again, that's not necessarily easy for those around him, but that's what Jay Roach, the director of Austin Powers, was able to do get the script in and then do another run that made things may occur that are better. And there was a bit of, it was hard, as I say, the character of Charlie was the first time Mike had really played himself and possibly hasn't done so much of that. Um, what would Charlie say? What versus what would a bigger comedy character say? We're trying to keep that truth. But I think that's a, that's a beautiful moment. And there's plenty of Charlie moments that were funny that you might expect in that kind of, you know, not so broad a thing that Austin Powers uh, and Dr. Evil are. I think we have a paper who's down. It's all right, it's just messed. We have a paper down. I repeat, a paper is down. Do you think Rod Stewart got any royalties out of the songs used <laughs> as sung by his dad? Um, I've, that's an interesting question. Whoever wrote those songs, I think there might be some rule you're allowed to have three bars or something. Right. Uh, so I imagine that, uh, you know, they had to go to town just the tiny thing of hoping to get uh, there she goes uh, that kind of stuff and then getting it and the, and the biggest cup of cappuccino and stuff like that because Mike really wanted that scene to set the tone uh, again lucky to get that we got that in the can that took several takes and I think that was in the reshoot actually and uh, if you look closely in the opening shot I'm there the next day he and four other inmates took turns pissing into the bitch's ocular cavities. This way to the cafeteria. That was the first time I ever heard the term ocular cavities as well. <laughs> yes, but that's Mike's encyclopedic knowledge, just mm. that, that kind of detail. Another thing that's interesting about it is we covered Fatal Attraction on one of our episodes, which would have been, I suppose, about five, five years or so before this... Well, this came out and around this time you would have had you know uh, like 
so many of these sort of erotic thrillers like Basic Instinct and that kind of thing going around. And there was so much of that kind of thing of, you know, people getting together with people who might end up being murderous. Dare I say, quite quite often it did sort of play on the fear of um, men fearing women being crazy. And that's why I really like the resolution of this one is that, you know, it's okay. Like he was, you know, he was, it was, it was, you know, it wasn't her that um, he had to fear after all, it was someone else. And I, I quite like how it sort of plays on that moment in time in the nineties where that was a big thing in cinema. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? I mean, yes. What a trope that is. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's a good thing Sharon Stone wasn't involved in this after all. So this was what a year after Basic Instinct. Yeah, and... well, I imagine that must have been why she seemed like a. Well, um... I didn't. Yeah, why she was a good casting, as it were. Yeah. I just read Wikipedia, which says she wanted to play both sisters, but um, <laughs> I've no idea if that's the truth or not. Uh, what I do know is that movies start, and you say you've got this, you've got that, and and then the elements disappear completely, and uh, uh, it changes her very much in in the kind of the process of getting the studio to say yes. Tell us a little bit about uh, your your work that you currently do at the comedy store, Neil, because I think all of that feeds in very much into what we've been talking about with the writing process that went into right. this great movie. Well, just to go back, Mike Myers taught me and others of the comedy store players uh, how to do improv. Kit Hollaback was there, who'd also worked with Robin Williams in San Francisco. So that's what I still do every uh, Sunday. And that's Mike's writing ethos in a way, which is yes and throw out an idea, somebody comes back with an idea, you add to it. And um, the improv ethos is, is yes and. Yes, I accept your offer and I build on that. And actually, you might not know that um, a lot of improvisers work for Pixar. And so they call it plussing, which is you can't critique an idea unless you've got a positive way of moving it forward. Um, because any writing endeavour is quite fragile. Somebody says, what about this? And you go, no, that's rubbish. That's tough. Whereas you say, oh, that might not work, but how about this? Or oh, that leads me to think X or Y. So they call it plussing. And that's the improv ethos. And that's what Mike likes. He likes to be in a room where we can throw out ideas. And it's OK if this one just drops a bit or that one doesn't directly influence, but helps us get to the next step. That's his ethos. He's always taught improv, uh, taught us improv using that idea that yes, and accepting the offer. And that's what I that's what I uh, perform with the comedy store players. And I teach it now, actually. That's mostly what I do uh, is working with people in business, using the skills of improv about listening, working with difference, accepting you don't know the answer. And uh, you ha- might have a mental script in your head of where it's going to go. And the other person has a different script. And how can we work with people when we need to collaborate with possibly different agendas or allowing an agenda to emerge that's good for both of us. Might need to come and work for my people. Say <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no too often. Um, well, this is the thing. It's very applicable. I started doing this in 2000. And I thought I could just say people, hello, improv is about listening, uh, working with what the person said <laughs> rather than just overruling them. That isn't a good skill. And then I discovered there's all sorts of applications of this. And there's even leadership and management theories that that basically most organizations are a series of improvisations, whereas they pretend to be structured and architected and there's rules and regulations. But often 
what it really is, is just a bunch of people trying to have a conversation, doing their best. And so why not borrow the skills of improv, which are explicitly about how do we work together when we're uncertain? Uh, there's no obvious script as to what happens next. And how do we hold our views lightly such that we could co-create something like the Pixar people saying, oh, I thought this, you thought that, but what if we combine them? That's that's a third possible outcome. Uh, or times when people step back and say, all right, okay, I'll be more yes than and, if you like. I'll say, yeah, that's great. Keep going with that idea. And then sometimes step in, oh, got a problem here. I'll do the and bit, if you like. And so that's why yes and is the ethos of improv. People think that means you have to say yes and all the time in real life. But no, we use yes and as a verb. I'm yes anding you. It's a verb. Mm. I'm yes anding, which is taking your idea and trying to build on it rather than yes butting, which is, oh, no, don't like that. Can we stick to what I was thinking? And that's very applicable in so many ways. Teams, leaders, negotiations, sales, listening to what the other person's feeling, noticing what a useful mindset that is. And it's surprising because people say improvisation, that means just make it up and whatever. It's a mess. But no. And this is what I'm always saying to people. Improv has its own skills, structures, protocols. You can learn it. You can learn how to do this. You can be taught it. And the applications are surprising. Every day I get emails from people saying, I did this, I did that. Three years ago, you helped me with this. And I'm actually more yes and that I'm aware of my own assumptions that I hadn't even thought were assumptions. I thought that's the way the world was. And um, that's what the improv mindset really is, is how, how can I be aware of how, my perspective is but one. Yes, an exchange in, in this movie that makes me wonder whether it was born out of improv is um i'm afraid that you're going to leave me i'm going to cleave you <laughs> you're going to leave me and i'm going to cleave you yes yeah. <laughs> there we go that, that could be it but it but builds it's... on that mistake he sort of he's that's almost says one thing says another thing and then it builds yes. doesn't it yes in, in exactly. a great way but again uh yeah that the environment was and that's what interesting working with mike with people in the room he wanted people in the room because just to test their <laughs> the smell test yeah, uh, comedy. Comedy needs to be spoken out loud. You need to be able to have a, a somebody, and that's why comedy is often written in pairs, where they say, <laughs> and they can't help but laugh. Oh, that's a good one. That got the laugh straight away without any rubric. And then there's things like a joke on a joke, which we talk about in comedy, which is you'd only get that if you knew the previous bit. <laughs> so, for example, uh, you know, why did the chicken cross the road, Gregory Peck? Uh, wait a minute, I need, I need, what, eh? I need something in the middle. <laughs> so if you've heard, you know, to see Gregory Peck, then it can, it can work, you know, that, if you see what I mean. So anyway, yes, Mike yes. would often say, hang on a minute, that's a joke and a joke. We need to work, give the audience the step in between, uh, which improv will often do, but I'm going to cleave you is, is a lovely one where, you know, it came out of that um, sensibility. And can I be all tinfoil hat and say, why did the chicken cross the road? Because it was the colonel and his pentaveret. <laughs> there you go that is that is very good very good and you've written a fantastic book about oh, how to build communication at work haven't you thank you very much I, I the book is called in the moment um and i have i had my cake and eat it because we create theater improv is theater in the moment from audience suggestions we create moments theaters uh, moments of scenes stories vignettes sketches um but a, a lot of uh, what 
may help an organization or an individual is what happens in the moment. The impromptu, the unprepared scripted or unscripted moment in the corridor, the end of a Teams or Zoom meeting. Um, and that's uh, important to think, you know, how do I make that positive? If I'm really listening, then perhaps I need to know what kind of response I should give. But I also talk sometimes about the moment being a longer period, six months. So, for example, when you're thinking about a new job, Rich, obviously you are. Um, when When is the moment to move on? When is the, you know, what's the... What's that period in my life when I was thinking I should be doing this or perhaps, oh, dare I do that? Mm. So um, people talk about a moment in history and we talk about a man of moment, whatever. Uh, and so there's a kind of sense and it comes from the Latin movio, movio, uh, momentum and stuff in the sense of movement of um, when we're working together, are we moving forward or are we not? <laughs> are we stuck? Just two of us. And this is a lot of conversations where two people are just stating their point of view and it's kind of stalemate. Somebody has to be prepared to change. And that's what improv every scene. We think, how is my character altered by this? By doing this scene, she's learned something. She's lost something. She's gained something. She's altered. Just not unlike the Robert McKee, where the scene has to have some sort of driving um, force or momentum that leads us to the next scene. And the story inexorably unfolds, even if we as the audience are thinking, oh, don't do that. But we know why our protagonist did it. Yes, well, this is this is the thing. Um, when we're thinking of ourselves as the protagonists in our own life, having that, you know, motivation to to drive the story forward is um, always a good thing to bear in mind. And I think... Well, that, yeah, I mean, my book is... I've got various chapters. I've got improv where I explain the stuff I've tried to give you in this moment. Creativity, which is a big thing in organisations now. Collaboration, definitely, because um, collaboration is need in every organization but hardly anything in our education system helps you collaborate because it's all about you can't cheat <laughs> you can't borrow somebody else's work but actually the real world is let me throw in my two penny oh no you've got to see this through can i give you this project can you help me with that mm, um, yeah. and leadership and serendipity in the in the arts we are open to serendipity you suddenly see a moment as an artist, oh, I'll capture that. Oh dear, I did the wrong color. Oh no, that's the right color. Serendipity, and it was somebody from a big management consultancy, the boss of it said, actually serendipity is underrated. It's not just luck, it's noticing an opportunity, noticing when something unexpected actually was helping us move forward. But my, uh, and there's one about humor. Humor, can't we just have more laughs at work? Not laughing at people, but laughing with people about, oops, uh, I made a mistake. Oh, remember what we did last time. Oops, you know, this is so difficult. I've got to laugh. Yeah. And yeah. one on storytelling, and this is um, perhaps I've learned from movies as well. Story is the basic software of human understanding. The story of, we always impose story, even if it's not there. Why somebody did, oh, she she would do that, wouldn't she? Because she's X. Turns out it was um, not in a, a deliberate thing, but talking about agency and purpose, somebody has the chance to do something um mindful whatever uh the protagonist is doing things deliberately whereas in most organizations much of life it's a bit more cock up than conspiracy um yeah. so that's why it's much easier to say to people look what's the story that people are telling even if it's not true it's the one that's going viral that that it's happened because of them uh it happened because of him and also people are terrified of pitching 
to a client or trying to sell or they're telling going to a networking event and i said don't don't worry about it just tell some stories or mm. invite others to tell their story the story of how you got here the story of where you fancy going the story of how we arrived um, at this decision or whatever so story about somebody you can see why they've chosen to do x sometimes they take the wrong route they turn left when they should have gone right all of this uh, stories were there before excel spreadsheet i believe there are cave drawings in indonesia before language that are stories and that's part of our dna we always want to know why did that happen mm. who was responsible and we often are mistaken uh, but it's the storyteller who the, is the one who can write, dare I say, the first draft of history. And if you can understand somebody's story, you can forgive them perhaps for their seemingly hurtful or strange behaviour. Yes. Oh, that's a very, very good lesson for us all, I think. And um, and in the book as well, you also have really useful sort of tips on how to use solitude in a productive way and and rest and those things too just like digesting kind of what you've just experienced i like yes, those well, i tried too. to make it uh, a book that'll be helpful so i've i've talked about highfalutin things and stuff that i may have mentioned today about the world is uncertain like quantum mechanics but i also say things like if you've got to give a presentation on teams uh, make sure people can see and hear you <laughs> yeah. um don't have a full day of stuff before you're about to go and give a big presentation or a job interview. And if you've got a stressful moment in life, a presentation or whatever, um, make sure you have a little treat afterwards. Um, go and have a lie down, have a cup of coffee, a chocolate glass of wine, or see yeah. friends, because th these things are stressful. It's late. Not for me. Who for then? Who for then what? When you looked at your watch and you said it wasn't late for you, I was wondering who it was late for. Well, not me, no, no. I like the nightlife. I like to boogie. <laughs> I'll make the tea then. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this film. I think that, yeah, as we said, the the reason that so many people love it is just that it's not afraid to do all of those things that you've been talking about. You know, it's not afraid to kind of be different, try new things, not be exactly the same as all the other movies. It's um, That's why people remember it so fondly, I think. Yeah, I think so. And and that's possibly why it was hard to sell, you know. <laughs> yeah. Any artistic endeavour is, is uh, you have to make help the audience understand it. But once you've seen the film, you kind of love it because you've had, perhaps you've had to work a little bit and, and, and think about some themes in different ways. But that, you know, it's it's easy to sell something that's clearly in a certain category. Completely. And this completely. is mixing genres. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps we should organise a screening somewhere. Oh, oh, I think uh, it would be. And we should, we should uh, do that. And how could we have sort of objects and sounds and smells that are tangible, that are reminiscent of the movie? Should we do it in a butcher's? <laughs> <laughs> uh, or uh, whatever. Give uh, people a little box of Fruit Loops. Yeah, I think, you know, like people go and see Rocky Horror Show and throw rice and stuff. What can we... Uh, uh, what can we do to bring this movie to life? Because bag... my amazing. cousin's a bagpiper. I'll get <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. well, that's right. Oh, yes. So Mike was here last year, and I think he went to Scotland. And there was a bagpiper who said, "Thanks to you, bagpiping became famous again." You know, it was <laughs> oh, like, that's fantastic. You helped the brand of bagpipe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and people do, do love Mike uh, because he sort of brought out this this sort of Scottishness that is in life. 
uh, that's in life uh, that's that that, that uh, perhaps it doesn't get the uh, you know the awareness that, that uh, perhaps people want. And and you know Shrek, you know, he did it originally not in that accent and, and insisted doing it with the different voice, which does give it a different um, sense, I think. And they. I think if Spielberg uh, said, "All right, we'll go for it," he was going to re-record it because it costs a lot of money. It will. Mike said, "I think it's it's going to enhance the character." That's sort of typical of Mike, and why he's. There are times when people got frustrated with him when he a movie was ready to go based on one of his characters and Saturday Night Live. He said, "I just don't think this is good enough. I just don't think we've nailed the story here," and that's frustrating. He's like, "Well, hang on a minute, you're being offered millions of dollars. Just do it," and and that's not in his in his playbook. No, well, I think I think that you know, in order to to be a memorable artist, you've got to stick to your guns, don't you? Sometimes on the things that really matter to you. You possibly do. Uh, yes, I know. And I'm just thinking, yeah, uh, let's get those bagpipes in, and let's all um, um, think. What do you make to get Axe Murderer to be a real living 3D experience? I think we should definitely have a screening, Rich. Well, we, we, talk, we did talk about it. I'm sure that's the sort of thing that the, the Prince Charles cinema or something like that would be uh, well up for. Get a bit, oh, of, tartan, fun, yeah. bit of tartan out there. <laughs> yes, tartan. Oh, yes. And poetry. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm. Oh, there's so much. We could have people's towels falling off at <laughs> awkward moments. I've always really loved that moment. It's so funny. I'm going to go and uh, I'll, I'll just, I can um, email Mike. And say, what do you think? Could we do a live-ish version? You know, what would be the moments that uh, could live? Because uh, Mike is aware that people do love this film. Um, and it, it lives way beyond its opening uh, in people's hearts. One Swedish-made penis enlarger pump. That's not mine. One credit card receipt for Swedish-made penis enlarger. Signed by Austin Powers. I'm telling you, baby, that's not mine. One warranty card for Swedish-made penis enlarger pump filled out by Austin Powers. I don't even know what this is. This sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. One book, <laughs> Swedish-made penis enlarger pumps and me. This sort of thing is my bag, baby. By Austin Powers. Ah. Just sign the form. I got into Austin Powers. <laughs> this is a tiny aside. Uh, when you sell a movie abroad, I don't know whether it still pertains, but there was a kind of, can you give me some celebrities? So at that point, Hugh Grant will be five, should we say. It's not, not to five. Uh, yeah. And so Mike said, I, I'd like you to play the part that I did play, but we've got to get the numbers up. Uh, for international. So Rob Lowe probably would have been, I don't know, three or four, something like that. Uh, I would have been zero. <laughs> Tom Arnold who, in the toilet uh, <laughs> would have been two, whatever. So it did, I think they had to get a total of 20, something like that. And they managed to get there with the small parts that they, they got. And so that's why I was able to play my part uh, of the... Uh, with you the wouldn't screen. have been a zero, Neil. I would have been, yes. I, I um, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. I, I'm not being immodest. I, I, I am, and, and certainly was a schmuck then. Just, <laughs> just a guy. I was in terms of international movie distribution. I would have been a zero. Let me assure you. Some, some. There were. If I think you, I, 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 I think I, I recognised you, and I would have been a teenager. I, you, you're, I don't know. You would have been a comedy fan. I fear you. You would have been a bit of a comedy nerd. Uh, <laughs> you might have been this more aware of watching comedy, but in terms of 
a people and and let, let's let's not say a country, but in some you know distant country where this may be, uh, they see it dubbed or subtitled. Neil Malarkey is nobody. Let me assure you, Tom Arnold would have been somebody because he he would have been somebody. Rob Lowe certainly would have been a big number. So that's why the Rob Lowe scene is not necessarily in the American version, but is in the the other the international version. So so yeah, let me assure you, I was a zero. But just a little thing there for international distribution, you kind of have to have who's the you know, who are the people in it that will get you out of your home to go to the cinema to watch it? It's interesting, though. I wonder whether they do overestimate some people's want for big celebrities, because, Rich, I'm sure you would have been going to Austin Powers because you were a Mike Myers fan rather yeah, than anything yeah. else. So. That, that that and the, the excessive James Bond. Roots. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. The, yeah. the concept. The concept. And, and, yeah. I haven't yeah. seen Wayne's World 2 several times. Very interesting. And, um, oh, just as an aside, do you know if that... Dr. Evil impression is meant to be Lorne Michaels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. Well, good to have that confirmed. Lorne Michaels uh, loves it. Oh, I can write it. I mean, it's the highest compliment, isn't it? Really? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and everything about the character is, is based on Lorne Michaels, the, uh, the sort of interesting accent. I don't think he did the finger. I read subsequently was something Dana Carvey used to do when he was doing a, an impression of uh, Lorne Michaels. But um, yeah. uh, I used to tease Mike and I said that, you know, in a way you are Dr. Evil and Austin Powers. You want to take over the world, but also you want to be a silly teenager. And he said, you're not the first person to say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he said, are you, are you, Mike, you want to take over the world through comedy. And because uh, he, he wanted his movies to be, you know, universally accessible. So that's why he had to temper some of his, shall we say, uh, highbrow stuff because he had to do in a, a, a silly joke, a visual joke, um, because he wanted them to be seen. by. that's why, you know, when we talk about artists, he wanted it to be art that everyone loved. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's a big ask of people. It's very easy. Not very easy. It's, it's perhaps easy to say mine's a minority thing and only see if people see it or whatever, or I don't really think it's art, but everyone will love it. It's broad, you know, if we've got enough car chases, it'll be fine. But I think my, my, not many people I think would try and, and go to those ends of the spectrum. Most of us are trying to do a bit of art that people like. But Mark was, Mike was definitely thinking, how will that play in, uh, you know, a big multiplex where they're not hip to some of the references on a, Wednesday afternoon on a small house you know I still want it to be enjoyed by by that audience yes well it must be said something like that visual gag of the wardrobe when he's hiding in it and everything falling on top of him in this movie is something that's that's extremely <laughs> funny just as <laughs> you know, that's Mike would say can we have we got enough of those <laughs> you know we need to have enough of those whilst also observing Harriet's Charlie's journey yes Fantastic combination. There she goes, there she goes again, we fire up the bagpipes and unreject some fruit loops we leave you with a reminder that you can dodge that axe while dangling off the roof all you want but you can't get off this crazy thing called love i've been cat i've been rich i've been neil and this has been don't you want me